Father, please help us to understand just who this man Jesus is. Amen. Tell me if you've ever heard this uh, conundrum, this problem, a poser. If a poser, a problem, a riddle. If God is all good and God is all powerful, then why does evil still exist? Heard that one? Been challenged with that one? Ever worried about it yourself? If God is all good and God is all powerful, why would evil still exist? In philosophy circles, that's known as the problem of evil. It's a classic plaything for philosophers, and if you're studying that kind of thing, they give you that, and you can feel really smart as you debate round and round. And the conclusion is that because evil exists, either God is not all good or that he's not all-powerful, because if he were both, he'd get rid of the evil. And so therefore, this God, the God of the Bible, does not exist. Now, maybe you felt the sting of that if you'd been challenged as a Christian by friends and family. Maybe it's worried you. Maybe this is your question, it's what's holding you back from really committing to Jesus Christ. But it's nearly always put as if God is totally ignorant on the subject of evil, as if Wow, he'd never thought about it. And we've got to realise though that the whole Bible is about the topic of evil and how God is dealing with it. That's what this book is about right from the start to the end. It's all about this question. God's not somehow running scared from the subject as if he could disappear in a puff of logic. But it's also raised as if Christians are the only ones who should ever have a philosophical problem. But I reckon the atheists have an even bigger problem because atheists don't really believe there is such a thing as evil. They don't believe it anyway. If it's all just a great big accident, you know, the world was just kind of random, uh, there's no such thing as good. There's no such thing as bad. What's happened has happened. All there is is what's happened. There's just things I don't like and there's things you don't like, but there are no real acts of evil because evil is an absolute term that shows you believe in some kind of moral ideal over and above this world, over and above the big accident of the universe, which, if there is no God, is not even possible. So don't be put off when people raise the subject with you. In fact, take them on. Get on the front foot, charge down the wicket, and just hit it back over the boundary for six. But the answer is not tied up in philosophy either. And we'll see that particularly when we come to passages like today where we see Jesus... Christ in action. See, Jesus wasn't an academic philosopher in an ivory tower in a university somewhere uh, cogitating on deep things. Jesus was in the pain and the midst of suffering and injustice and evil and he was dealing with it. And as we get into what is quite a long section today, we get to see him as he deals with evil. Uh, notice the situations that Jesus Faces, yeah, they're quirky, they're all a bit strange, you know. What's with, you know, the woman sneaking up on him and him not knowing? What's with multiple demons? What's with all these quirky things? But, but don't get distracted by the, all the quirks. I mean, they're worth thinking about. But notice that the situations are much more extreme versions of what he's already been dealing with. He's dealt with sickness and demons and things like that before now, as we've seen the last few weeks. But, but things are really ramped up here. There's so much more extreme and hostile than anything he's had to deal with before. 
There's the hostile environments of the sea and the wind and the storm at the end of chapter 4. And for the first time, the disciples' lives are in danger. That's not happened before this. There's the hostile powers in chapter 5, verses 1 to 20, and when he moves over the Sea of Galilee into Gentile territory. It's not Jewish territory, that's why there's a pig farm there. And, and Jesus confronts the human tragedy of this man who's clearly deranged, but he's more than deranged, he's possessed by evil spirits, and not just one, but, but a legion of them, 2,000 as it turns out in the air. I mean, this is extreme. He prefers to live amongst the dead in the graveyard. And, he, and he's there mutilating himself day and night, cutting himself. And then there's a the small child who's dying. He, Jesus has cured terrible diseases before, but nothing that's been life-threatening, nothing terminal. And indeed, she does die before Jesus gets to her. I mean, Albert, Albert Camus, who was a French philosopher, he, he argued against Christianity in a novel called The Plague, uh, which was about children dying and about the horror of children dying. And the death of a particular child becomes a significant point in the renunciation of faith in God. Because, you know, God is real. How could he let this sort of thing happen? And yet here Jesus does. Then there's this poor woman who's been bleeding for all these years and no doctor or medicine has been able to help her. In fact, they've given up and she's just an outcast in society. They didn't understand these problems. They didn't have hospitals like they do, you know, the hospital by the, uh, the river in Eritrea. Um, she's given up as an outcast. And because these situations are extremes of the pain and suffering and evil of this world, in each of them there's terrible fear. Fear comes when we lose control. Fear comes when we don't have the ability to survive anymore. And the people in all these situations are terrified did you notice as we went through, they are terrified. The disciples are afraid for their very lives. I don't know if you've ever been caught out in a storm in a boat uh, when the swell starts to pick up or when the wind picks up or, or when a storm hits. Anyone been in that kind of situation? Uh, yeah, it's, it's scary, isn't it? I was in a ferry on the harbour once when uh, everything started to pick up and the swell, it was like two, three metre swells and the whole boat's going up and down. I was inside, a, it was the, um, the, the hydrofoil. Um, I was on a charter boat a couple of years ago. Daryl down at Glory Jeans uh, took me out on a charter boat uh, off the coast somewhere. <laughs> I think he was trying to kill me. Because <laughs> later in the day, a change came through and the boat was pointing the wrong way and it hit us side on. And the whole thing lurched. I dropped the rod and just grabbed on everything. And we were going back and forth. I mean, it might have only been a 20-degree pitch. I don't know. But it felt like I was going to die. <laughs> and uh, uh, Maybe I'm just a wuss. But, yeah. but it, that was nothing compared to this situation. This is more like the Sydney Hobart in Bass Strait with the water sweeping over the deck. And these are hardened fishermen. And they are scarce if we are going to die this day. The townspeople are terrified of this demon-possessed guy. They've chained him several times in their fear with stronger and stronger chains. He has snapped through them all like they weren't there. The woman is afraid that someone will notice her in the crowds that she's not welcome to be a part of. And so she's hiding. And when Jesus calls her out in verse 33 of chapter 5, we're told she was trembling with fear. Jairus fell at Jesus' feet, pleading, 
begging Jesus to come before it's too late. And, and he was afraid that his daughter might die. And then his heart must have sank further when he was delayed because this, this woman interrupted the, the rush to the house. And then when the news came that she's died, Jesus has to say to him, don't be afraid because that, he is afraid. What is life going to be like now? My family has changed. They're all afraid. They're terrified of these calamities. But I think there's even more than fear going on in each of these situations. There's an element which we might well miss these days as non-Jews living these thousands of years later. And that is the sense of uncleanness and curse from God that most of these people would have all been regarded with. The disciples, this is a bit of a stretch, but they've just been written off in chapter 3 as lawbreakers who are are spitting on the law of God and they've been condemned with Jesus already. Maybe they deserve this situation. The man with the legion of demons, having having anything to do with the dead, made you unclean in the law. This man lived amongst the tombs. Having anything to do with blood made you unclean. And he's cutting himself all the time and he's bleeding constantly. Having anything to do with pigs made you unclean. And worse than all that uncleanness, it's Satan's minions that have caused this. He's possessed by this legion of demons. Now, just as an aside, I know a number of you have been asking questions about the devil and demons and exorcism and that kind of thing, and and does it exist today? Is it real? Uh, And I'm not going to address that today, but what I've done instead is um, write a paper on it. Uh, It's four pages, some light reading before bed if you want something to help you nod off. Uh, There's a stack of copies on the back desk and there's a few down here afterwards uh, Yeah, if you want to enjoy some light reading on uh, the devil and demons and how to fight the devil today. But get the point. This man is an outcast. He is unclean. He is unwelcome. He is cut off from man and he is cut off from God. The little girl died. Death in your house made your whole home and family unclean. The woman with the bleeding, she's unclean according to the law of Moses. Any woman who is bleeding with her monthly problem uh, is unclean. But she, she couldn't enter the temple in that time. But this woman couldn't participate with Israel at all, let alone uh, the people. They, they had nothing to do with her. She had nothing to do with them. And it's, she's been excluded for 12 years because of this problem. She is a complete outcast. She is unclean. She is seen as under God's curse. Now, uncleanness in the Old Testament is a bit of a weird thing because all sorts of things made you unclean. They weren't necessarily sinful things. The food you ate made you unclean. And, you know, pork and bacon and all those delicious things that are, you know, a billion Chinese, can't be wrong. But um, uh, it's not about hygiene. It's not about hygiene. Camel is not unhygienic and it's an unclean animal to eat as well. In fact, there's whole lists of unclean foods. It's just pigs, the most well-known of them. It's not about hygiene. So what is the whole unclean system about? Well, it's a, it's a picture from God 
about the state of this world, that there is right and wrong, there is in and out. It's not that those things, they're symbolic of the much greater problem of there is evil and there is righteousness and there's sacrifice that takes you from being one to the other and things that take you the other way as well. And they're all part of this world that is under the curse of God. I mean, let alone the uncleanness. Why are the storms and sicknesses and disease and little children dying in this world? Because humanity has been cursed. Because of the fall back in Genesis chapter 3. Because we said we don't want God. We couldn't be bothered with him. His rules are pathetic. He's holding out on us. We believe the lie of the devil and we went our own way, taking God's position in our own lives, pushing him out. And God cursed this world and said disease, death, all these kind of things really are God's curse. It's not particularly these people. They're not the worst of sinners. But they are in this world that is under the curse of God. And Jesus is here in the midst of these extremes of suffering, surrounded by people who are terribly afraid, people who are all seen by their community as outside of God's kingdom, and actually suffering under the curse of God because all suffer under the curse of God. See, Jesus isn't sitting in an ivory tower pontificating about the problem of evil and staring at his navel and coming up with clever answers. He is here to confront it. So what does Mark want us to see about Jesus in the face of evil? Well, first thing we're shown is his control, right? Not that he's in control of his emotions, he's that, but he has complete power over each and every situation. He can tell the wind and the waves, just stop and it stops. He's, he's asleep in the back of the boat, he's completely unfazed by it. He knew he wasn't going to drown. This was not the moment, this was not the way. And when they wake him up, terrified for their lives, he just, one word, and it's calm. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but when a storm comes out at sea, just even when you're at the beach, once the storm's finished, well, the swell is still massive, isn't it? When Jesus stilled the storm, it went pancake flat immediately. Or in chapter 5, verses 7 to 15, the evil spirits know that they're outmatched. They beg him for mercy and he commands them out of this man and they leave him to their own destruction in the herd of pigs. The woman, uh, he doesn't even have to acknowledge that she's sneaking up on him to to touch him and she's healed. One touch on the edge of his robe and this terrible burden which has lasted 12 years, it's just gone in an instant. The little girl dies The mourners are actually paid to be there and cry and their their crying can turn to laughter in just a moment, as we see. But Jesus walks in, takes the little girl by the hand and says, little girl, arise, and she does, though she has died. And it's not because he's got some secret, ancient pack of whacker technology hidden up his sleeves. And he's not raising her up as some sort of zombie from a horror movie. She is alive again, eating with a family in joy. Storms, demons, sickness, even death itself. What what control, what mastery, what power is this? Nothing can stop him. 
But it's not just his power that Mark wants us to see. It's also his care, his heart, his, his goodness, his love. And I think that's highlighted in so many ways. On the boat, they challenge him about it. The first story in this sequence, the first thing they do is they, they say, don't you care? Does Jesus care? Are we going to see him caring in all of these situations? Of course he gets up and he stops it. He acts. Or what about his care for the wretched demon-possessed man? I'd never noticed this until Wednesday morning. But it struck me. Why did Jesus cross the Sea of Galilee when he knew a storm was coming? Why would he risk the lives? Not that it was a risk, but why would he risk the lives of his disciples? Why was he going over there? What was on the other side? What was he going to do? Did you notice it? Do you see it there? The only thing he did on the other side was go to the graveyard, find this man, help him, and then he got back on the boat and came home. Do you think he cares about this man? That's how much he cares. And not just for the man, but he sends him as the first missionary outside of Israel to tell the good news of Jesus. He cares for the woman. Not just that she's healed, but that she understands her healing. He certainly cares for Jairus and his daughters. I mean, is this, is this man good? Is he loving? Here he is, caring for all sorts of people in all sorts of situations, even the most wretched of outcasts. But notice also something else about Jesus in the face of evil. Something that might strike you as very odd. And it's something that's actually come up a whole bunch of times already in the Gospel of Mark, and we've just not commented on it. And that is what one commentator I read calls Jesus' hidden display. The hidden display of the kingdom of God. Because every time Jesus does one of these great miracles and, and people are excited about it, what does he say? You're not allowed to talk about it. Whatever you do, you're not to speak. Happens in chapter 1 a few times. Every time the crowds come because they, the word does get out, he runs away. It's always his secret. It's been there all the way through Mark and it continues here. So 5 verse 43, the little girl's raised. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat instead. Well, of course, everyone's going to know that she's okay. She's back on her feet. But what he did, how he did it, they weren't allowed to tell anyone. That's what's so odd about the demon-possessed guy because he's told to go and tell others. But it's the first and last time that it's happened. But he's a Gentile overseas. He's not a Jew. And who's he supposed to tell? Well, he's supposed to tell other Gentiles over in the Decapolis in his homeland. Because Jesus isn't coming back here again. He's allowed to go speak. But we're also shown a whole lot of people who don't want to know. It's not just that Jesus hides it. It's... There's many who can't bear to see the truth. They don't want to see. The Gentiles who saw the whole thing with the man, they don't want to know Jesus. They beg Jesus to go away in verse 17 of chapter 5. The woman and the girl's family also come and see and understand what's happening, but the crowds outside, they laugh at Jesus. <laughs> She's died. Stop wasting your time. 
And the whole section ends up with Jesus in his hometown back in Nazareth. And he's there and he's teaching and they're kind of enthusiastic about his teaching. But in the end, all they can see is just Joseph and Mary's little boy. They don't want to see him as anything more. Isn't that the carpenter's son? And you know a prophet's never welcome in his hometown. Jesus was the one who taught that because he was experiencing it. But some did see. Who is it that saw the truth about Jesus? Did you notice? Not necessarily in full clarity, but they did see something of who this was. Which ones? Well, it was the desperate ones. The ones who knew he was the only one who could help them. The petrified fishermen. They're the experts in the sea. They wake up a carpenter to help them in a storm. I mean, what are they expecting to do? Patch the boat back up as it's breaking apart? I mean, what's a carpenter going to do? It seems crazy, doesn't it? But they knew he might actually be able to do something about this. That's why they say, don't you care? Because they know he can do something. Or chapter 5, verse 6, the demon-possessed man, though full of insanity and uncleanness and evil spirits, when he saw Jesus, he ran to him and fell down in front of him. Or 5.22, the ruler, then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus, came and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He's this man of significance and importance. He's the church leader uh, in his desperation against all of his peers advice and uh, withering stares I imagine because they all hated Jesus guts you remember they're trying to kill him all his contemporaries he falls at Jesus feet if he wasn't desperate he wouldn't have done that would he but when your child is sick you get desperate that's when you lose your pride and you'll do anything and deep down even though he knows or you know, his contemporaries say Jesus is bad, he knows Jesus can help. Or the woman in verse 28, if I just touch the hem of his cloak. So in desperation, some people see something of who this person is in front of them. And whether they knew the complete truth about Jesus or not, just who this is is being made abundantly clear to us that this is no ordinary man. This isn't even an extraordinary man. This is someone else in time. This is God in the flesh. And Mark wants us to understand. And in fact, he's at pains to point it out for us. You see it, for instance, in chapter 4 and verse 41. They're on the boat. They were terrified after he calmed the storm and said to each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Who is it? that the wind and the waves obey. Well, you never know whether the disciples knew what they were saying or not, but Mark picked it up because it's almost a direct quote from several Old Testament Psalms. Psalm 65, verse 7. We just read that one. Psalm 89, verse 9. Psalm 107, verse 23 and following. They all say that it's God who stills the wind and the waves and the storms so here's a group of Jews saying who is it that stills the storm who stills the sea and their own scriptures 
tell them who it is. Or again, chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, the demon-possessed man is told to go and speak. But there's this lovely little twist that I only realised on Friday. Have a look at it. It's really interesting. Verse 19, chapter 5. Jesus wouldn't let him get back on the boat. He begged to come with Jesus. Jesus wouldn't let him but said, go to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he, the Lord, has had mercy on you. But get this. So the man went away and he began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And the people were amazed. You hear the difference? It's beautiful. Go tell what the Lord has done for you, how the Lord has had mercy on you, and he speaks about what Jesus has done. He knows exactly who this is. He knows exactly who the Lord was. Or the woman who's told, your faith has saved you. I actually think it's a bit sad that the NIV translates it that you know, your faith has healed you. When, when Jesus uses the word save, uh, sozo, uh, because she's been saved. Well, she's been saved from a sickness, so I kind of understand what they're getting at. Um, but she's been saved from more than I'm sure Jesus is pointing out something much more profound than just that she's been saved from sickness, that she's been saved eternally. I'm sure they're supposed to be held together. But if you only just have made you well, you only see one side of the coin. Her physical healing was symbolic of the spiritual healing that Jesus was doing for her. And that's God's domain, isn't it? Saving people. And though Jesus may command people to stop speaking and many refuse to see, it's actually blatantly obvious who this man is. This is not the abstract God of philosophy that we're being introduced to here. This is God in the flesh come to deal with suffering and evil and disorder and death. But once you know that, how do you respond to him? How do you respond to God turning up? Well, we can see how the people of the time responded. I want to point out three, three responses that are in the passage. Some, and I guess particularly the ones in his hometown, who wrongly thought they knew who they were dealing with because they were too familiar with him from their background, their response was, ah, forget him, just whatever. For them, familiarity bred contempt. They just could not be bothered and they quickly dismissed the stories and what fools they were. They didn't want their small little worlds upset Now, perhaps that's you. Overly familiar, maybe because you grew up with Sunday school stories, which maybe you hope and assume are just made up, just like all the Disney movies you're watching around the same age. Don't let familiarity breed contempt. Do not forget about this man. Don't just dismiss him. Most of the people, though, their response was fear. During the storms, the the disciples were afraid for their very lives, but they wake Jesus up and with a word the storm's gone, the seas can't pancake float. So so they got up and they hooped and hollered and they high-fived each other and gave Jesus a hug. That's not what happened. They weren't feeling happy. Verse 41, he's just stopped everything. They've been saved 
and they were terrified. They were terrified before, they're even more terrified now. They asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. They were more terrified than just a moment ago when they thought they were going to drown. And I think at one level it's sensible, isn't it, to be afraid of that kind of raw power, isn't it? Then over the other side of the lake, when the people saw how Jesus helped the poor man, how he destroyed the demonic demon uh, legion with just a, a word, did they go congratulate the man? Wow! Welcome back! Did they go up and shake Jesus' hand and thank him and say, you are amazing, just wow! Verse 15, when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who'd been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Verse 17, the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. The woman was scared before she touched Jesus because she didn't know if this was going to work. She didn't know if she'd be welcome in the crowd. She thought she might be seen. She's healed and Jesus calls her out. So verse 33, the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear. You come face to face with a guy that can do this. You tremble with fear. Deep down, the biggest issue I have with the atheist philosophers and the people who might confront you with the problem of evil is, is actually they have no fear of God. It's all just academic. And they can sit back and postulate and relax and twiddle their thumbs and laugh and pontificate and gaze at their navels, write learned essays. But when you come face to face with the power of God, it is terrifying. And it should be terrifying. These people were terrified. That is not a bad place to start. Now, some, like the crowds overseas, all they had was fear. But what's more important is the other response, which only some of the people had. And that is faith. Not just faith in the abstract, but faith in Jesus. By which I mean trust. They, they stake their lives on him. That's what it means to have faith in Jesus. They think, he's the answer and I'm going to him. I've heard that Prince Charles has gone on record as saying he doesn't want the royal title of England, which is, which is given to the kings and queens normally, which is the defender of the faith. He's, he doesn't want that title. He would rather the title defender of faiths. Now, defender of the faith is defender of the Christian faith. It was given to King Henry VIII by the Pope, who then... Stabbed the Pope in the back, but anyway, that's... <laughs> uh, and they've retained that since. It's the defender of Christianity. He doesn't want that. He wants to be the defender of people's right to trust whatever they like, even if it's a pink spaghetti monster. Well, we'll see if and when he becomes the king. His mother has lived a very long time, you know. <laughs> she may well outlast him, anyway. <laughs> But it's not just any kind of faith that these people have. And that's not the kind of faith that's going to help. It's who you have faith in that matters. It might be weak faith as Jairus' faith appears to be because as soon as he hears the news, he gives way to fear. It might be uncertain faith like the disciples in the boat, not even completely sure if Jesus really does care for them. It might even be a bit superstitious as this woman's faith appears to be. You know, if I just touch his clothes, his clothes will be powerful. 
But it's where their faith, where their trust is placed that matters. You've got to have faith in the right thing. Putting your faith in something that's not reliable or won't hold you up is a completely stupid thing to do. I may have taken up carpentry, but you should never trust a chair that I make. (laughs) I'm not certain, but it might well let you down. Literally. Groan. You've got to have your faith in the thing that's trustworthy. And that's the faith which has power to save you. That's the most important lesson here. What Jesus says to the woman in her fear, she is terrified of him, but he says, your faith has saved you. It's not the power of her faith that counts, it's who she placed it in. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is the way of salvation. Faith that surpasses fear. Faith that pushes fear of the world aside. Faith that pushes uh, fear of him aside. Faith that grabs hold of him and trusts him to deliver on what he's promised. You don't have a philosophical problem when you meet Jesus face to face. He's the answer to all the conundrums. Here he is, all powerful, all good, defeating death and suffering and evil. And sure, the horror of life still remains. And and there may be lots of questions that you might have or that your friends might have about this particular suffering or that particular suffering. Why is it, you know, that that, children are still getting sick and dying? Why is it that someone's got this cancer? Why is it that we're going to have those questions? We're still in a world where ships are put at risk at sea. We're still in a world where there is sickness. We're in a world where there is terrible social ostracism. We're in a world where little children still die. Jesus came into the world and he did heal and he helped many people at the time, but not everyone then and he doesn't help everyone now, not even all believers now with these problems. But that's not what he came into the world to do. That's not why he came. He didn't come to change the whole health regime of this fallen, dying world. He came to fix the real problem of evil. The real problem which lies behind all suffering and all brokenness and all decay. And that is the problem of sin which we have caused. And he dealt with those problems once and for all on the cross where where he bore our sin upon himself. Where he defeated Satan who's in charge of all these demons, he just knocked him on the head and he's been crowned in glory and in his resurrection he's now defeated even death itself. And so pray for sure. Pray to God who we know loves us, who is able to help us, knowing his power and love. But still take your medicines, right? And know that he's going to do whatever's good and right and is, is going to benefit his glory in the long term. But what we've really got to do is hold on, hold on and wait for the consummation of this victory, which will only be seen when he returns as he has promised he will do. See, that is when evil and suffering and Satan and death will finally be destroyed. That is when we'll have something even better than heaven on earth. You know what we're going to have? We're going to have heaven in heaven, gathered around his throne in glory and joy forever. Jesus is up to the task and he is good for his word. Here he is in all his power. Here he is in all his care. 
It is right to tremble before him. But even more than that, it's right to trust him because he is God. And it is only faith in him that saves. It's only faith in him that saves. I hope it's not going to take some terrible disaster or situation in the order of these kind of things to bring our community to trust him, to bring him to the point where they'll come in desperation. It might take that. I hope it's not going to take some terrible disaster in your life to bring you to the point where you'll trust him. Come to him now. Trust him. Trust him with everything. Trust him with your life. I mean, who else would you place that kind of level of trust into their hands? Who else? Everyone else will let you down. Why would you trust anyone other than this one? This one who is all good, who is all powerful, who defeats death and suffering and evil. There is no one else you can trust. Father, thank you for your mercy on this fallen, broken, dying world. Thank you for the mercy that Jesus showed in these individual people's lives, for the love that he brought them, the healing that he brought them, the rescue. Father, please help us to fear you, to know that we are nothing compared to you, that you are the maker, we are the creation. But help us also to love you and trust you with a, with a perfect love that will drive out that fear because we know that you have sacrificed everything for us, that you've given your son that we might have life. We pray for our community. We pray it won't come to some great disaster to bring people back to you. We pray as we go with the words of the gospel of life, that your spirit would go before us and bring change and healing and change lives and make people want to receive Jesus with joy. Father, please help each one of us here to trust you with our lives. If we have got lingering doubts, please take them away. If there are questions we still need answered, we pray that we would search and not be satisfied until we have found them. And we pray that we would come to this clarity of understanding that Jesus is the one only Jesus can save. Amen.